Okay, so we're going to get started in God's Word together. If you would open your Bibles to Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 4, starting in verse 25. Ephesians, chapter 4, starting in verse 25. That's going to be on page 838. If you are using one of the Bibles we have provided for you, let me go ahead and give you, as you turn there, some background, since we're picking up in the middle of Paul's letter here. I'll give you some background to Ephesians. Uh, After many people in the city of Ephesus decided to trust their lives to Jesus, Paul ministers among them for three full years, which may not sound like a lot of time for an apostle, a pastor, a minister to camp out in any one place, but it was super long for Paul, Uh, at least twice as long as any other place he settled and spent time in. So what he would do typically is he'd preach the good news, he'd explain how to worship Jesus, and then he'd leave behind leaders called elders to help love and care for the church. And then he'd say, see ya, I'll write you a letter, as he went away. And usually he did write a letter, and it was wonderful. And it was not very short, usually quite long. Well, the Ephesian Christians had a very distinct non-church Jewish background. They were people who, who grew up neither attending church on Sundays, neither attending synagogue on Saturdays. But that does not mean they didn't have active worship lives. They did. They were worshipers. They worshiped all kinds of gods. Especially they loved Artemis. This one called Artemis. Like Ephesus was the place to worship Artemis. They loved magic. Like performing things in their lives to make their crops grow, to make them more wealthy. And speaking of wealth, they loved money. These are the things they worship. So these Christians in Ephesus decisively chose to break with that life, break with those objects of worship, and instead worship and love and trust Jesus. Yet, they still found it difficult to not drift back to to locating their sense of satisfaction, their sense of identity, and all those familiar things they grew up with. The old gods, the magic, the money. It was easy just to drift back because they were so familiar. So as we get to our passage today in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul has been explaining that Christians are indeed free. They're free from the penalty of sin, which is eternal separation from God. They're free from the slavery to sin, so no longer dominates and masters their life. They're free from the control of Satan. They're free to mess up and risk big things for God. Yet, even Christians can choose to go back to their jail cell. They can choose to forsake their freedom for temporary times or seasons in their life. So a couple years ago, I was at Popeye's over on Eastern Avenue, and I ran into my friend George Roper, or as he used to be called in prison, Pastor Roper. I used to go up to the prison. The first, first two years I lived here in Cayman, two and a half years, I'd go to the prison in Northwood every, every Sunday night for a, a, a church service they did there, and I was invited to come along, sometimes speak, and it was, was wonderful. I met George there, George Roper. George had been sentenced to life in prison, during which time he trusted his life to Jesus. And and his life transformed before the prisoners, the guards, the ministers, their very eyes. And And he began to love God's word, study God's word, and then even teach from God's word. And when I saw him a couple years ago, he had just been pardoned. He just received a pardon from his sentence, which is wonderful. It's something he was seeking for a while, he was praying about. So I asked him when I saw him, and how, you know, we're friends, so how's life on the outside? 
right? You've got to laugh. He says, honestly, man, my life is great. But I'm finding that others, not so much. He said, you know, it's interesting, Ryan. I found that prisoners, prisoners often live with more freedom than most of the people who dwell outside of Northward. I said, wow. Man. I, I can't say I was too surprised by that statement because I've seen these men worship Jesus, a lot of them. But he continued and he said, you know what's really sad, man? It's really sad is most unfree people I meet are the people in churches. Yikes. He said, it's like, it's like they returned to the prison cells of their old lives or the prison cells of the world. That was the analogy he used. When Jesus invades our lives, he unlocks the cell door from the outside and sets us free. He's the only one who can do it. He liberates us from finding satisfaction and identity and all those familiar things we grew up with or adopted along the way and said, I want this, I treasure this, I give myself to this. He frees us from that into something much more satisfying and certainly more eternal. But because it's freedom, God gives us freedom to return to what's now an unlocked prison cell. We're still loved by God. We're still his kids. But we choose to return to the unlocked prison cell because that's where we feel like we have control over our lives. That's where we feel like we can be happy again. If I just engage myself in those familiar things that I used to indulge in, I'll gain control. I'll be happy. It's like, you remember that movie Shawshank Redemption? Morgan Freeman character, Red. He contemplates ruminates about the decades spent behind bars. And he says, you know, these walls are funny. First you hate them, then you get used to them. Enough time passes, so you get to depend on them. And that's what it's like with our old way of living. We just want to, man, that was so dependable. That provided me so much quick happiness to my life, even though we know it didn't last. Even though we know there's a law of diminishing returns, to the objects of our old life, the old things we used to give ourselves to, they never really fully satisfied. We go back to them anyway. So Paul writes in Ephesians 4 that he's concerned about Christians drifting away from this abundant life and growth in Jesus back to the familiarity of what used to imprison them. He says that was the old way of living. That was your old way of thinking. But I recognize you might have to put on this new life, this new way, so what kinds of prison cells would you expect Paul to talk about? What would you think? Maybe addiction? Sexual immorality? Living for worldly things like money, success, career? All of those things are the sorts of prison cells people talk about when they testify to how Jesus is liberated from, the, from that life. Instead, so we, we don't hear about sexual addiction here. We're not going to hear about old ways of living for money, success, or for ourselves. We're not going to hear about immorality in all its forms. Instead, Paul is much more practical and realistic. His main example of a prison cell that many Christians return to so casually, even unwittingly, is anger. Anger. Think about it. We, we often lament, man, that person fell back into addiction. I can't believe it. They drifted back into sexual immorality and cheating on their spouse. They, they drifted back into pornography. Or they drifted back into just living for money and success and that good kind of life. But do we ever really say, man, it's so sad that person fell back into anger. <laughs> and yet, that is how Paul chooses to say, I'm warning you. 
This is what it looks like to imprison yourself once again. We pick up Paul's line of reasoning in Ephesians 4, verse 35. We're going to read, sorry, 25, and we're going to read through verse 32. Therefore, Paul says, having put away falsehood, that old prison cell. You're going to see this in almost every verse. Paul's going to contrast that prison cell to real freedom in Christ. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. That's where real freedom comes, speaking the truth. Verse 26, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with malice, with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. This is God's word. So the ancient Romans had this saying. In Latin, it was uh, ira fur brevis est. And that saying meant anger is a brief madness. Anger is a brief moment of just going crazy. And many of us think of anger only in that way, the quick-tempered, incredible Hulk moment where something just possesses another person or even possesses you. It's like an alien coming into your body. And you just get... Everything goes white, (laughs) and you just spout words, or you get angry, or veins pop out of your skin. That is how most of us think of anger, but it's not the only kind of anger. And I hope we can identify ourselves in the different kinds of anger. For some of us, experience days when little goes our way, little goes as planned, and we carry home with us a sort of latent agitation, such that we act immediately touchy towards the first person we love who encounters us. We're touchy towards them, we'll be bothered. If they're not doing what we want to do, angry. Some of us bury feelings of injustice and hurt so deep down that it makes us physically sick. It makes us stressed. We're unable to sleep at night. Some of us stew, we deeply stew deep down on wrongs until an opportune time comes up where we can can address it. Others of us keep a record, keep a mental record of wrongs, don't we? so that we can sort of passively aggressively, passive aggressively bring it up to the wrongdoer, right? Some of us, because of hurt in our lives, we're just cold, we're distant. We, we put up barriers in relationship. And that's the way we express anger. Not through our words, even through our actions, just through an, a, a sort of blocking someone out of our lives, keeping them distant. I don't have a quick-tempered, incredible Hulk-type anger. That's just not me. That's not Ryan Oeschlager. But Ryan Oeschlager has an anger problem still. And what's interesting is that anger, I think, has become the acceptable prison cell, if you will, for Christians. We easily excuse returning to anger in order to regain some sort of control to our lives, some sort of semblance to our lives. We have to get angry to do that. We need to deal out justice. We need to right wrongs by our own judgments and actions. And we just say, you know what, sometimes you got to do it. 
And yet Paul says, no, 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 that's, that's going back to slavery. That's going back to being in prison. Don't do that. So what I want to do this morning is first to review sort of the landscape of anger, what anger looks like. Because anger can either be constructive or destructive. Then I want us to work on getting inwardly constructive. And then we'll work on being outwardly constructive and how we use our anger actually to love others. So first of all, let's talk about constructive and destructive anger. Verse 26 is one of the most fascinating verses in the New Testament, in my opinion. Where are we here? Paul say, be angry. That's an imperative. That's actually a command. Be angry and do not sin. We would think Paul might say when it comes to anger, okay, if you get angry, don't sin. Or, hey, I know you guys are going to get angry. You're going to have short views. You're going to have moments of frustration. But just don't sin when you do it. Rather, Paul expresses this radical possibility for those of us who can't turn on and off our emotions like a light switch, which is pretty much all of us. And it's this, that it's perfectly compatible to both get angry and simultaneously be in right fellowship with God. I want you to hear that again. It's possible to both get angry and still be in right fellowship with God, to not sin. Anger is an emotion that accompanies a judgment, a judgment that we are making. It's usually a good judgment, at least initially. When you get angry, you are saying this, that matters and it's wrong. You're saying two things, that matters and it's wrong. That's the judgment of anger. And that's why it's so very good. It's, it's very human. And it's potentially constructive. God is a just God. And we are made in his image. So when you experience getting the shaft, when you identify someone getting manipulated, when everything in you wants to shout against inequality and for the friend for whom nothing seems to go right, that is you imaging God. That is you expressing who God is in your life. That is a right feeling. Temporary, measured anger is God's gift of a right judgment that you're making in your life. So I'm giving you guys a word picture every week. That I'm giving you guys the scales of justice as an appropriate word picture. You're making a just judgment that matters and it's wrong. That's our word picture for the week, scales of justice. Enjoy that. So that's the constructive aspect of anger. However, anger is designed by God to last about as long as Paul's statement. So think about Paul, how short Paul's statement is. Be angry and do not sin. As quick as that is, he moves on quickly to say, but do not let the sun go down on your anger. Give no opportunity to the devil. God's gift of anger has a soon-come expiration date. For for you South Africans, not a just-now expiration date, but a now-now expiration date. There are fruits that expire more quickly than anger should, all right? So what Paul means here, he doesn't mean when he talks about the sun going down when you're angry, he doesn't mean a firm deadline of 6.05 p.m., depending on where you live and which time zone you live in. Rather, he's saying use your anger quickly, but also ditch it quickly for more constructive tools. That's why we can hear anger used in our passage once positively and twice negatively. Anger is positive when you use it temporarily, helping you judge right from wrong, negatively when you hold on to that feeling and let it fuel your life. Let it fuel how you respond. Let it fuel how you act towards others. 
And when you let it go on too long, when you let it start to fuel you, that's when anger becomes not only destructive, but demonic. We can no longer see the other person's point of view. We get fixated on it till we can't think of anything else. Even when it's for a good cause. We're angry for something that's just so wrong and so unjust. When you fixate on it, you can't see how easily the oppressed turn into aggressors. How subtly self-righteousness, oh, I know I'm right about this, subtly blinds us to our own sinful goals, our wants, and our desires. So Paul could not be more forceful, could he, in in what he says about long-term anger. Anger that we hold on to and let it fuel us. It's a demonic opportunity. And it grieves the Holy Spirit of God. Think about how extreme those things are. Satan uses long-term anger to deconstruct our relationships from without as we grieve the God who lives within. So on the outside, Satan uses that opportunity when we hold on to anger to destruct, to destroy these relationships. And it grieves God, the God who lives inside of us. There's no other phrase where we're told that the Holy Spirit is grieved other than anger towards other Christians. So in a nutshell this morning, remember nothing else, remember this. Use short-term anger to long-term love. Use short-term anger to long-term love others. How is that possible in this realm of earth? First, let's look at two examples of short-term anger in the life of Jesus. Just to show that Jesus is a fully human being, that it's possible. The first comes in John chapter 11. Jesus observes the response of friends to death, to the death of his good friend, Lazarus. And we're told that Jesus is deeply moved in spirit and greatly troubled in verse 33 of John 11. And then in verse 38, we're told that Jesus is deeply moved again. Now, I grew up being told that that means Jesus was very sad. Jesus is sad at his friend's death. He's sad for all the other friends who are crying. But the word translated deeply moved has, it really connotates this nuance of indignant. There is a, there's an anger behind Jesus being moved emotionally. What is he angry at? He's angry at death. He's angry at the sin of the world that causes death. He's angry at the devil who furthers death. But it lasts no longer than a few minutes for Jesus. Because there is an expiration date. How does Jesus respond? He responds with love. By raising Lazarus from the dead. It's an act of love. Here's another example. Mark chapter 3, Jesus encounters a man in Capernaum synagogue. This man has a withered hand. And Jesus uses this opportunity to ask the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the time, who've been opposing Jesus, hey, guys, what's the right thing to do? Help this man or wait till the Sabbath is over? Help this man or wait till this day of rest is over when we're not supposed to do anything according to your law. They say the more important thing, Jesus, is to keep the rules. Keep the Sabbath. Wait till the next day to heal this man. Jesus looked around at them with anger, we're told in verse 5 of Mark chapter 3. But short expiration. How does Jesus respond? Does Jesus judge them, rebuke them, call down fire upon them? No. He hears what they have to say, and he heals the man's hand. Jesus uses short-term anger to love people back to life and wholeness. It's an emotion that helps him rightly judge a situation. He's saying, well, that matters. Death matters and it's wrong. A man's uh, withered hand matters and it's wrong. The way people fail to love matters and it's wrong. 
then he loves at the source of that wrong. In the places where it's undeserved, Jesus uses anger, short-term anger, to long-term love others. You see that? Anger can thus be used constructively. So how do we start to do that about it? First, we've got to focus inwardly, getting inwardly constructive. Paul addresses in our, our passage, getting outwardly constructive. First, we need to address how we get whole again ourselves, getting this right before we get this right. For help with introspective, we're going to turn to the book of James, who addresses anger head on. It's going to be up here on the screen, James chapter 4. You can read along with me up on the screen if you want to. James says this, What causes quarrels, what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. James goes on to encourage us that God gives grace for this. He gives practical help when we are angry. But he still addresses one more issue with anger and specifically conflict at the end of this passage, James chapter 4, verses 11 through 12. He says, do not speak evil against one another. He's still talking about conflict. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law, judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? So James 4.2 and James 4.12 sound two key linchpins, two key currents of, danger, uh, of anger that, that kind of run within us. And that is demand and self-exaltation. This is what I want, and this is who I am. Or to put it sort of in a phrase... My will be done, and you'll be damned if you cross me. We want something, and we will judge everything and everyone else accordingly. If we don't get it. That's how much we want it. That's how much we desire it. So consider for a moment just, just almost how that courtroom works. I think, I think a lot of times when we struggle with anger, there's like a micro courtroom that plays out in our mind during conflict. You, you play all the prosecuting roles. You're the innocent victim. And you're the offended plaintiff. You're the zealous investigator. Going back, researching. Here's what's happened. You're the police serving a summons to the offender. Here's what you did. You know it, I know it. Let's go to court. Right? You're the district attorney pressing home irrefutable charges. You provide eyewitness testimony to the crimes. Thanks for being a witness. And finally, you're the judge ready to mete out just punishment. Of course, it's a corrupt courtroom because you're the only one playing all the roles, right? Do you see that? James 4.2, James 4.12 encourages us to look inside ourselves and ask, in the heat of anger, really ask ourselves, number one, what do I want? I'm feeling angry. What is it that I want? And number two, how am I playing God to get it? I want to encourage you, when you find yourself in a moment of anger, ask those two questions. What do I want? How am I playing God to get it? Here's an example from my own life. I have this reflexive response to 5 to 6.30 traffic going out to Savannah. All right, I live out that way. I live in spots. And even though I know it's coming, like if I, if I leave the office at about 5, 4.55, whatever it might be, or if I leave at 6, I know that traffic is going to be there and I'm going to be stuck for a long, long time. I still can't help but react to it. It still gets under my skin. Maybe you can help me later. Like, counsel me, pray for me. I, I understand that. What is it that I want? I need to ask myself, what, Ryan, do you want? Well, I want to get home to my wife and my kids, and that's right. But if I look a little deeper under the hood, sometimes I just want to be in control. 
I want to be efficient with my time. And this is messing that up. Sometimes I want to look, you know, I don't want to look bad to Katie or to my kids. Right? I want to look like a, a, a good husband who's there for the whole evening. Right? I want to look like a good father to my kids who I'm available for them. Sometimes I just want to go paddleboarding. All right? And so my needs need to be met by my timeline because the sun's going to go down and I'm still going to be angry and I'm not going to be able to paddleboard as well. So that's going to be a problem. So that's what I want in that moment. Now, how am I playing God to get it in my situation? One, I start to think the government's lazy because the two lanes on the Lifford-Pearson Highway that are supposed to be done aren't done yet, right? I need those two extra lanes. This would all be solved. Come on, NRA, let's get to this. Not saying that judgment's right. Please, no one be offended. I judge people as either bad drivers or overly aggressive when they dart right in front of me or not courteous because I'm important. They should let me through. I judge more harshly any attempts to communicate with me while I'm in my car, whether someone calls me on my earpiece, on my earpiece, or I'm stuck in traffic at a standstill and someone texts me or messages with me. I'm like, ugh. <laughs> I occasionally try to take control, drive a little more aggressively myself. I'll even judge myself. Like, man, Ryan, you deserve this. You know, you were kind of harsh today towards this person or you spoke too loosely. You know, you deserve this. These are the thoughts that go into my head. And what would help me, what would serve me is these two little questions to help me repent and get right with God. What do I want? This question helps get to my idolatry. Right? What am I putting in the place of God that is more important to me than the things of God right now? And the second question encourages us to release the reins and trust God for his provision, right? His provision. How am I playing God to get it? But I should be trusting him to provide it. So take those time, those questions to help start us to, to examine ourselves, to start to get right with God who wants to forgive. And as he restores us to wholeness, then we can be outwardly constructive. That's our third point this morning. Let's get outwardly constructive for a moment. Your short-term anger has helped you rightly judge this matters and it's wrong. You've gotten right with God about it. Getting back to Ephesians, the Apostle Paul gives us four different ways to be outwardly constructive with our short-term anger. So let's go through those together. Okay, the first thing, the first way, and by the way, these aren't things you sort of do in order. These are things you choose using wisdom, discernment, sensitivity to the Holy Spirit. God, which tool do I need to use to be outwardly constructive with this short-term anger that I could could, could, could use short-term anger to love better where there's hurt, when there's a need for grace? Okay, so, so think about your situation when you almost often get angry or a recent situation of anger. How can you be outwardly constructive? Here's, here's one way, and it's loving confrontation. Verse 25 says this, Ephesians chapter 4. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. And Paul is echoing a more well-known truth that he's just mentioned in verse 14 of chapter 4. Sorry, verse 15. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, Christ. Speaking the truth in love. Verse 25 suggests the motive for speaking the truth in love with other people. And that is because we are members of one another. For we are members of one another. Paul uses the analogy of the body. Right? We are connected, guys, in ways that go beyond Sunday morning, weekday community groups, ministry team, teams that you're on. We're connected beyond that in a spiritual way. So after identifying you know, what that matters and it's wrong, it may be improper 
to avoid a loving conversation with the wrongdoer because their wrongdoing is hurting the church as a whole. It's hurting you. It's hurting me. So to avoid speaking the truth in love may be that other members of the body are getting hurt. I have a sciatic nerve problem, all right, right back here in my backside. Oftentimes when it flares up, it hurts all the way up my back, all the way down my legs. Sometimes even in my foot and my toes will cramp up. They'll hurt. That's what happens with pain in the body of Christ. It spreads quicker than you might think. It hurts other people. Even if you don't see it tangibly in a spiritual way, we are members of one another. One part affecting the other. If a person is inflicting unaddressed pain, it affects more than just them. So speak the truth in love. How do you do this? First pray. First pray, God, help me with this. Actually, first, secondly, you might want to consider strategies two, three, and four, which we're going to get to in a moment. Charity, word building, forgiveness. I'm just going in the order Paul mentions them here. So pray first and pray again. Secondly, confront them in person and in private whenever possible. Not over text or telephone or voice notes. <laughs> in person, in private whenever possible. Confront them specifically. Avoid making general broad statements. Right? Like, yeah, you know, you're just like this. This is just who you are. That doesn't help anyone. Also, avoid using words like always and never. <laughs> Those usually rarely help a person here well. Seek first to understand, then to be understood. Listen to their response. Listen well. Don't interrupt. And then confrontationally clarify. Give an example if you need to. They might ask you, hey, are you saying this? Encourage that kind of conversation. Finally, plan for a follow-up in the near future. When you confront someone in love, that person is receiving it sometimes in one of two ways. It can be many ways, but one of two general ways. Some of us are like dinosaurs. If you confront us in love, we just swallow that hole. We just swallow that hole. We're down with it. We're like, you know what? You're right. I've done this. I'm sorry. And can we move on? That's awesome. But some of us are like cows. Some of us are like cows. We chew on it, right? We got to chew up, chew on it, sometimes regurgitate it, chew on it again. Sorry, that's kind of gross. We need to plan for a follow-up in the near future. That person may need time. Their initial reaction may not be how they really feel or want to respond. So loving confrontation is one way we can be outwardly constructive with our initial anger to love others. A second way is charity. I'm not speaking of just charity in the sense of like donating to the Red Cross or anything. I mean, I mean an action of love, the act of love. Probably the most seemingly out of place verse in our passage is verse 28. Read that with me if you will. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. How does stealing fit in with anger and love? I think it relates in two key ways. One, thievery runs against this culture of truth that Paul is advocating in verse 25, right? Speak truth to one another. We want a culture of truth, and thievery runs against that. But also, Paul stresses the reason for hard work, the reason for labor. That is so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. That word share, metadidonai, means to distribute personally, not through a third party. To distribute to someone personally. In other words, Paul has in mind here not online giving, you know, doing a run or a cycle for a good cause or the GoFundMe page to help someone else. Rather, a tangible interaction that takes place between one person and another where there is a real sacrificial giving. And I'm showing it to you. And it's personal. Though every bone in your body may resist it, that someone in need may just be the person who's wronged you. 
When Jesus says, love your enemies, do you think he just set a high bar so we'll get pretty close, <laughs> right? That we'll just kind of be kinder to each other, be nicer, be a little more tenderhearted, as these verses say. I think he really meant it. He really meant to love our enemies. And think about it. What does it take to identify someone as your enemy? It takes that temporary anger. It's a short-term gift. And in the face of wrong, a specific kind of action is called for. Loving someone who wrongs you. Loving someone who wrongs you. It doesn't mean you have to work up these feelings of affection or attachment for that person before you do it. To the contrary, Paul writes elsewhere. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. It's an action that matters in that moment. Romans 12.30 says. What does that look like in our culture? Perhaps it means offering to buy a person lunch or buy him a beer. It may be a $10 iTunes or Amazon card or baking something sweet or just doing something you normally would do for a friend. Yeah, I just want to bless this person who's been so good to me. Try sometime. Okay, that should also mean I need to bless someone who's been not good to me. And then follow through. What I've found is it's often as your actions lead, your feelings follow. Your feelings that aren't there, the feelings of love and tenderness and kindness that aren't there, if your actions lead, feelings often follow. Third way that we can be constructive with our short-term anger to long-term love is by word building. Look at verse 29, one of my favorite verses, also most convicting. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as good for building up, as fits the occasion that may give grace to those who hear. Usually and especially with words, it's hurt people who hurt people. When we keep that in mind, it becomes easier not only to use words that build up and impart grace, it's easier for hurt people to hear it. Notice that such building, such fitting words, such gracious words aren't for everyone. In other words, not everyone will hear you. Your words have a specific audience. It says, grace to those who hear. There are some who won't hear. So we should ask ourselves, who is most likely to hear a word that builds them up and imparts grace? It's not going to be your favorite pastor, your favorite community group leader, your favorite worship leader, unless they've wronged you. <laughs> it's not going to be your most compliant child or your always encouraging coworker who's always so sweet. It's going to be the hurt person, the hurt person who tries to hurt others. He or she who's most likely endured a lifetime of discouragement, of deceit, of deprivation, they're so more likely to be surprised, to be almost taken aback by a word of grace spoken into their lives. So let's be the ones to do that. Use your short-term anger to identify such a person and word build into their lives. Here's a fourth way that Paul mentions. That you can be constructive with your short-term anger for long-term love. Look at verses 30 and 31. Sorry, 31 and 32, my bad. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with malice. That's the prison cell, right? Here's life. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Let me first talk about how to be outwardly constructive with forgiveness. Number one, if you need to forgive someone, identify specifically what you need to forgive. Specifically what you need to forgive. This will help you not bring it up again to them. If you're specific about it, you'll remember, God, I need to forgive this person for the words they spoke. God, I need to forgive this person for constantly being late. God, I need to forgive this person for being so negligent of me in these specific ways. That way, when you do forgive them, you won't bring it up again to them. Number two, declare forgiveness out loud. You know, at the end of his life, Jesus declared this power of forgiveness to his apostles. He said, if you forgive the sins of any, they're going to be forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness, it is withheld. 
Jesus has given us this power to forgive. So speak it. Don't say no worries. Don't say no biggie. It's all good. Actually say, you know, I forgive you. It's an acknowledgement of a hurt, but also of there being a clean slate. Number three, renounce sinful deal-making that often accompanies forgiveness. So often we forgive the person, but we're also expecting the person to earn it back, aren't we? Earn back good graces, pay it back to us. Or is it a temptation to punish or scold the person, even as we forgive them? Like, but just so you know, this really did hurt me in all these ways. So we add in extra words. Or we demand a guarantee that we'll never do it again. We have to resolve before God, I'm not going to do that. I'm, I'm not going to expect the person to earn it, earn it back. I'm not going to punish them. I'm not going to demand that they never do it again. How do we do that? It's not easy, is it? On our own strength, it's impossible. That's why Paul's final statement on love and anger is so important. Look at that in verse 32. Forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. And this is our power source. Jesus didn't just give us an example of using short-term anger to long-term love. He gave us the fuel. He is the fuel. He's the only one when he gets inside of us and his love gets inside of us that can empower us to do these kinds of things I've described. Romans 5, 6 through 8 says, you see, at just the right time, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will someone die for a righteous man. For a good man, someone may die. God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Do you hear that? God identified with short-term anger, those people are my enemies. They are sinners. And yet, at that point of greatest need, of most undeservingness, God said, I'm going to send my son Jesus to die there at that point of need. Can you imagine all the angry people who walked home that day thinking they had won? All the angry people who walked home like, yes, we did it. Pontius Pilate, the high priests, Caiaphas, Jewish leaders, the crowd who shouted for Barabbas, soldiers who spat in Jesus' face, Satan himself walked away. We won. We did it. Our anger won out. And yet Jesus is the one followed, loved, adored, and worshipped by billions of people since. It's Jesus. God, who was the only one who had a right to be long-term angry, and yet he decided to yield himself to love us all the way to eternal life. It was Jesus who said out loud to all those who would go home feeling angry and victorious, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I want you guys to stop and see in your mind's eye all those times you believed anger would help you win. And now see Jesus who sacrificially loved at the source of wrong in the places where it's least deserved, especially my own heart. Let's pray. God, we thank you even though we don't love them, even though they're not welcome guests, us, that you give us emotions, even the so-called negative ones. Just loved in this series, seeing how you explain through your word how you want to transform those emotions, even as you transform us. And anger is such a great example for many of us. We, 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 we fall on anger for different motivations, Lord, in our lives, to reorder our lives as a way of, of restoring justice, as a way of getting back and revenge. There's all kinds of ways Father, you mean for it to be this short-term gift to use to say this matters and it's wrong. So help us use anger appropriately 
not to hurt other people, but to recognize the wrong and rely on your love to bring mercy and grace and tenderness where it's least deserved. Please use us as Christians, as people who love you, Jesus, as agents for love and healing and restoration, even though sometimes we really don't want to. We rely on your power and your strength and your love to do that, Jesus. And we ask in your name. Amen.